Hey everyone, welcome to the first Probably Science recorded in Malaysia. I'm in Kuala Lumpur, I just played the comedy club run by our guest, Malaysia's, I'm going to say first comedian, like first stand-up comedian. Yeah, the first stand-up comedian. Yeah. Yeah, I wouldn't say first comedian, but yeah, definitely stand-up. The first stand-up and the biggest stand-up in Malaysia, uh, Harith Iskandar. Oh, How's it going, stop, man? Stop. It's going good. Going, really glad to have you in, in, in KL at our, at our uh, club, The Joke Factory. So we've only been open four months and you're, you're well, not one of the first foreigners, but definitely the first British. So there man, you go. it was fun. It's a cool club. It is. We've had some great, I'll, I'll, I'll brag, we've had awesome shows. It's a great little room and whether there's 20 people or 180 people, it's always a great show. Yeah, it's, it, I, I was saying this to you uh, yesterday, it reminds me of a New York comedy room because it's that kind of intimate but wide, okay. kind of like shallow, low ceiling. Oh, thank, thanks. It's, yeah, yeah, it's great. Everyone's just right up on the stage. Thank it's you. really interesting to watch because there's audiences who really know comedy who've clearly watched YouTube and experienced it and seen it at other comedy shows in Malaysia. And then you get people who are definitely at ne a comedy never show. Never been to a stand-up comedy show live before. They've probably seen it somewhere, but never been. So, yeah, we get, we get all types of audiences, though, who, who are, those who are, I would say, mature and, and understand where, you know, how comedy works. And then those who are just walking in going, whoa, you can say that on stage? Yeah. That's, it feels like it's the Wild West of comedy, right? It it's is. exciting. It is, actually. Well, I started 28 years ago, but I would say uh, the first true generation started about 10 or 12 years ago. And now it's sort of... I, it would be what LA or New York was in the 60s, in terms of 70s, in terms of when comedy started. Yeah, people working out, you know, people doing more mainstream stuff, and then some people working out what they could talk about anything. Yeah. And, you know, you're, gonna, you're starting to get the political stuff creeping in. and It's good. It's interesting. It's, uh, yeah, because yeah, you, you were telling me uh, <laughs> the other night that when you first started, you just know what, you just should do it at private parties. No one you know, well, when, like, when I, for it kind when of When I first started... Uh, it was, uh, someone saw me uh, get up on stage somewhere and tell funny stories, inverted commas, uh, at, this, at this bar once. They said, hey, I've got this company dinner. Can you, can you come and tell your funny stories? And I did that. Someone saw me at that company dinner and said, I've got this company dinner. Can you come and tell your funny stories? So the, for the first, I would say, eight to ten years, I was educating the audience as I was performing because they'd never seen... One person on stage holding a microphone, yeah. telling funny stories. No wigs, no props, no, no yeah. partner. No, no, yeah, the context was not set. So I was setting the context. And I, it was really strange because every, every show, you could see in the first to eight minutes, the looks on their faces as they processed exactly what I was doing on stage. Right. And trying to work out, okay, who is he? When they're like, oh, he's not going to do anything. This is the show. This is the show. He's, he's not the chairman. He's not the CEO. He's not... <laughs> You know, he's not giving us a pep talk. He's just telling funny stories. And then, so the first eight to ten years was literally educating the audience as I was performing. That's nuts. That's yeah. great. Uh, but, you know, it's, so we're here now. So and thank you for coming. Man, it was, it was a joy. So we, before we get into the stories, uh, we like to ask our guests this. Uh, what, if anything, is your background in science? <laughs> and, and that's ranged from, like, people with full degrees to people who are like, I blew stuff up oh. in the woods with my friends, or I had a teacher I liked or a teacher I hated. Science was my worst subject in school. That is I, not an I, uncommon answer. I started failing when I was nine, I think. In Malaysia, when you're passing, you get blue marks written on your report card. The reds started creeping in when I was about nine. My mom gave up on me when I was 11 and sort of uh, threw... Uh, Matt's tuition at me in, in the hope that I, at least I could balance it out. But uh, I was absolutely pathetic at science, which is weird because this year I did a, show, a, a TV show for BBC Earth. I was the host of a, a program called Got Science. And I was like, are you sure? Do you <laughs> really want this failure as the host of a Got Science show? What, but, was, uh, what was the show? What did well, you, you know, it's, it's in 30 minutes let's take a simple look at science let's demystify it okay so there, had, there were probably a hundred researchers trying to make me sound like i knew what i was talking but about but that also sometimes works to have someone 
Because you're communicating with the general public, so you're also the barometer for them. Yes. Like, if I... If I get it, if you I have, should. <laughs> yeah, if I can understand what they're explaining to me, then they've clearly done a good enough job of making it clear enough. Yes. <laughs> uh, it's hilarious. Uh, I, I, I was reading the scripts wondering, oh gosh, I don't know what I'm saying. Anyway. Well, let's get into it. There's been, okay. a, couple of, there's been a couple of space stories that are pretty cool. There's, um, so the Voyager probe which was launched decades ago, has now crossed into interstellar space. Okay. It's still out there. Oh, man, it's still going. Voyager. Oh, oh my God. So, so the, the pilot who was 19 when he started, he's, what, yeah, 48 he's, now or he's something? A, oh, older than that. He's, he's almost running out of food. It's, gonna right, get, it's getting bad. <laughs> when you're older, you don't need that much food <laughs> and sleep, so he's okay. They sent the right person. Yeah, it's just he's just down to, like, milk and cookies, but that's fine. That's fine. <laughs> so there's Voyager 2. What happened to 1? I don't know what Voyager 1 was. I can look it up. We've got the internet right so, here. Uh, that's one way I just, just deflected from talking about this. No, I, I, Voyager, please keep asking Voyager those questions. Voyager 1. Because, you know, the 2 is never as great as 1. Transformers, the second, was well, I fell asleep, I think. Well, this is, and, this is you know, weird. And, Rocky 2 is never great. So, so Voyager 1 was launched 16 days after Voyager 2. Ah, so they did a audience survey, and everyone agreed <laughs> Voyager Two was much better. So they released that first. That's exactly what happened. Yeah, they uh, were yes. they were filming them both at the same time. Like um, they made them both together. They like made they them, did with yeah. Lord of the Rings and everything. Yeah, just like it, they combined production. They put costs. thirty people in a, in a cinema. Which do you reckon is the best Voyager? So, so Voyager One was launched um, after Voyager oh, Two. Hang on a second. No. So, Voyager 1 was the first spacecraft, there we go, to cross the heliopause and enter into the interstellar medium. And Voyager 2 is the second. Voyager 2 has now. So, Voyager 1 is the most distant man-made object from Earth. I like, I like it how you read Wikipedia as if, ah, here is the truth. Here is the information. Here is the information. <laughs> we are not telling the lie because... I generally is, find that when it comes to things like... um. Anything space stuff, anything NASA or probe, Wikipedia, you can normally rely on because the people who update those pages really care. They really care <laughs> they really about get this right. shit. Right, when it comes okay. down to like a pop star or a sports no. team, like bullshit creeps in there. I know you're right. I've, I've, on my Wikipedia, there's a load of shit in there, which I, I can't. I can't change because I'm not one of those people qualified oh, yeah. to write for Wikipedia. Well, there's stuff on mine that has been intentionally put there by friends. like uh, To make you look... Friend of the show, Nick Doody, who you might have met because he played Malaysia a couple of years ago. Yes, but, Nick Doody, yes. Um, so Nick, Nick's been on the show before, my best mate back home, and uh, he's fucked with my Wikipedia page as a payback from me messing with his. Ah, uh, okay, got it. Now I'm going to go to your page. So, okay, so yeah, let's I talk remember. about Voyager... Uh, what are we doing two? Oh, oh, we're going to talk about your page. Let's do, oh, let's talk about you. I'll tell so you it, what my. Oops. Does nope. it say you're into little children or what? What, what does it? Yeah, say? but not in that way. Just like I like them. Okay. Who doesn't? Who doesn't? It. <laughs> here we. Uh, okay. Yeah. It. Uh, Nick claimed that prior to attempting stand-up, Kirshen attempted some notoriety as the Wilf in the cr double act Crazy and the Wilf. <laughs> is that a real show? It's complete bullshit. <laughs> Every oh part my of God. that is nonsense. And no one's tried to correct well, no it. One's, it's but there's a citation needed. Oh, so no one's... It no says one's... citation needed, but no one's corrected that. And then... So what's a wilf? Uh, so that's a... It's just nonsense. <laughs> Nick just made up a stupid thing. Sort of like a milf inverted. And then and then he added this later on as well, just to add back up... Uh, in an appearance on the podcast International Waters, he vowed that the world has seen the last of the Wilf. <laughs> oh, <no. laughs> Brilliant. But, yeah. but he did that because I, I messed with his page to make it look like Nick Doody was his chosen stage name. It's uh, Nick okay. Doody's his real name. His last name's Doody. That's a family name. It's related to the Irish names like O'Doherty and O'Dowd. It comes from the same root. <laughs> but he got duty, and which, you know, it doesn't mean as much in Britain or Ireland, but in America, that's like the yes. kid's worth for shit. So that's his genuine last name. Uh, so I changed his Wikipedia page. Uh, so it said Nicholas Derek Jackson, better known by the stage name Nick Duty. Yeah. <laughs> Brilliant. Just to make yeah. it look like he picked that. And then it made it into a local newspaper report. So, who <laughs> was plugging one of his gigs. So You're he, giving me ideas. Okay. 
Yeah, you can do that stuff. I, I think his brother's also messed with his Wikipedia page. Nick's brother has to make it look like he had a collection of spoons and some other stuff. But yeah, Voyager 1... Voyager 1 already outside of interstellar space. Voyager 2 has just entered interstellar space. After more than four decades, it's passed beyond the sun's influence. Okay, so but the sun is very influential. The sun. Uh, is... I remember there was the page three. Uh, they were very. Inf- was that the sun had the page three booby girls? Oh yeah, yeah, that was. That's very influential. Yeah, they claim to have influenced um, elections and yes. also probes. Yes, they're very. But this inf- is a different sun, I presume that they're talking about. This is the, the... Voyager was not going around the office of that newspaper. No, this office. is this is actually the um, the actual sun. The sun that the sun. The sun. The sun that was named after the newspaper, the sun. Ah, okay, got it. But so that the, the, the big hot thing, <laughs> the big hot thing, yes. which is very influential for all us, both in terms of the light and heat energy that comes from it and okay. the gravitational pull and so on. Okay, but I guess you have to at some point designate a point which it and the point of sending the Voyager 2 out there, I presume, is so that it, it comes back with some. Well, it's more information, some, yeah, it's more about light. the things that it's gone beyond, so it's passed by. Uh, hang on, I'm looking through this article to see which ones it's gone past because Voyager 1 and Voyager 2 have gone different to different things. So Voyager 2 is entering interstellar space in a completely different region from its sister ship. So whereas Voyager 1 travelled out of the heliosphere's northern hemisphere, the Voyager 2 is heading out of the southern hemisphere. Here the galactic magnetic field is thought to be weaker, which might also affect the shape of the heliosheath. So... So I presume that the scientists behind all this are sending this out in uh, an effort to disprove the theory of God, I guess. Yes. But what happens if Voyager 2 comes back with a message, like God sends a little text message through Voyager and says, I'm here? Yeah, it just says... Would no. the scientists, like, block that information out? Or just says, like, no longer at this address, yes. please. <laughs> yes, in a forwarded to or something. <laughs> it's, um... Uh, I think a good scientist would be... Would would be skeptical about it, but would still be open to receiving this new information. Okay, okay, fair enough. I think that's what a good scientist should do. Yeah, they should do that. They should do that. Good scientists, that's, uh, whether they are good scientists or not. But I, I would say it so. It must be pretty good if they created a, a Voyager that could last this long. You know, nuts and bolts and. Yeah, I mean that's it's according to this article. So different. Some things have stopped working. So both spacecraft, both Voyager 1 and 2, still have a working uh, mag- magnetometer to oh. measure the local magnetic field, and also two particle detectors, one for solar particles and un- another for incoming cosmic rays. And Voyager 2 still has a functioning plasma instrument, which could tell them more about the unexplored region, including the temperature, density, and velocity of any electrically charged material flowing around the spacecraft. So it's going to get a better idea of what's actually out there in terms of uh, magnetic field and energy fields and particles that are that are living out there. So this is a completely unexplored area of space, and now there's two probes in that area that are able to start measuring things. Interestingly enough, I guess the, the scientist behind all this, his name is actually Christian. Oh yeah. How about that? I wonder. Because <laughs> he he's, he says whatever his full name is that. Uh, Let's find so he probably name. was he's reacting against his parents. Like, why did you name me? Yeah, Eric, this? Eric, Eric Christian. Christian. So his so his great 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 grandparents would have been the town's Christian. Yes, and that's where they got the name. That's how <laughs> <laughs> they they grew up Muslim and he, they converted. Uh, we need a Christian for this town. Yes, and, <laughs> to persecute. And so uh, uh, Alan and Eleanor, Muslim <laughs> at the time, put their hand up and said. Uh, okay, we're we, we volunteer. We volunteer. So anyway, so the Voyager Two is out there. It's still going. It's, um, it's doing its thing. Doing its thing. Well, there's a there's also another interesting probe out there, which we've talked about on the show before. So NASA's New Horizons probe, which was the thing that flew by Pluto and took those amazing pictures of Pluto. Ah. So it's which is now, now no longer a planet. I knew. I know that. That is correct. It's now. It was. It was completely stripped of that designation, and now I think it's redesignated a dwarf planet. But a dwarf a, planet. But there's a bunch of dwarf planets. Uh, seven of them. Yes, exactly that, yes. and they all have different characteristics. Wasn't Pluto one of the dwarfs? Or is, am I? That's a Disney, different Disney character. That's a dog. That's a different Disney character. Yeah, that's the dog. Name the seven characters. Here's a science question. 
Name the seven dwarfs. Oh, the seven dwarfs? Oh, I can do that. Okay, we've got Dopey, Sleepy, Grumpy, Happy. Doc's the one everyone misses out. And then I'm, uh... uh, uh, uh sneezy. Sneezy. And... Bashful. Wow. Thank you. You are a scientist. Thank you. Yeah, that's, that's, just, that's impressive. Uh, okay. My sister was in a pantomime years ago. Uh, at, did, did pantomimes come we, to... We, we do... I was come across that in school because yeah, because Malaysia was occupied by the Brits for a long yes. time. So that I think you've inherited various. I think I played a tree once in the Birth of Christ. Okay, I, I was a tree. Oh, that's a difference. That's the nativity. That's the, the nativity, not, not not a pantomime. So pantomimes are, and for American listeners as well, they're sort of family shows that happen around Christmas, and they're based on a cup various. Fairy tales and stories. That's and the like, kids in the audience shout back like, look behind you. That's exactly it. The that's, wolf is here. That's it. Yeah. And yes. there's, yeah, there's a lot of call and response and audience interaction yes. stuff. And there's uh, songs and dancing. Yes. And, um, and there's various classic ones. And Snow White and Seven Dwarfs is one of them. My sister was in it back in the day. It was a bit of a budget production. So firstly, they couldn't afford any little people because they are very high in demand around the pantomime se- yeah, Christmas season. Of course. So they put little girls in beards. Um, and then, and they also, did you know that the names of the dwarves are actually Disney copyrights? No. Because they were invented. They're not part of the classic story. They were invented for the... For Disney. Really? So... So the original Snow White, the fairy tale, did not have seven dwarves. They did have seven dwarves, but I don't think they had had names. names. And they certainly didn't have names that corresponded with different characteristics and emotions. Makes sense. Makes sense. So if you're putting on a production of Snow White and the Seven Dwarves in a regional theatre on the outskirts of London... You've got to pay copyright. You either pay copyright or you pick seven similar but different names. No. So, so there was Rumpo. Like, there was like Cheery. Cheer. And, and, and Smiley. Angry. And, and instead of and Doc, I think there was like the virus or something. I can't remember exactly. Oh but. my, how confusing for the kids though. Like they'd go to this, you know, watch an old Disney movie and go, they've got the characters wrong. Yeah, and then the parents have to whisper like, they, they don't have much money. Look <laughs> around you. <laughs> Look oh at gosh. this theater. But that's, that's what she had. So, New Horizons, which flew past, which took those amazing pictures of Pluto as it flew past. Okay. And we talked about this uh, a while back with Deepak, uh, Andy's old college roommate who worked on the probe. Wow. So, when the mission sweeps past, uh, it's going to sweep past the 30 kilometer wide Ultima Thule, and it is on course for this on New Year's Day. This this coming. Yeah, so I don't actually know when this episode is going to go out because we're back. Because I just took my little the mini Zoom recorder. By the way, apologies for the slightly more echoey sounds, same as the Carl Chandler episode. But this is recorded on the road with a portable setup. But so I don't know when this episode is going to go out. But uh, it New Year's Day, it is going to sweep past this thirty kilometer wide. That's not very big. That's what around mm. twenty miles um, wide object on New Year's Day it's going to be making the most distant ever visit to a solar system body, which is 6.5 billion kilometers from Earth. Mission plan has decided at the weekend to forgo a possible trajectory change. It means that the probe will get to fly about 3,500 kilometers from the surface to take a series of photos. There'd been some concern that the object might be surrounded by large debris particles which could destroy the probe if it were run into them, but nothing of the sort has been detected, and so a wider, safer pass will not be needed. Also, they nearly had to deflect it earlier. So this is getting ludicrously close to a tiny thing in the <laughs> billions of miles away from the Earth. That um, It's three years since it flew by Pl- Pluto, and... It'll be just as tricky to get observations of Ultima. Controls will have to tell the spacecraft precisely where and when to point its instruments or risk sensing empty space as it hurtles by at 51,000 kilometers per hour. 51,000 kilometers an so hour. I'm just trying to think about, you know when you're on a train and you, you're trying to read the sign on the platform yes. as it whizzes past? How... But and that's maybe fifty miles an hour, like maybe maybe like seventy-five to hundred kilometers an hour. 
This is 51,000 kilometers per hour, although it is going to be a fair bit further away. It's going to be 3,500 3, kilometers from the object, but they're going to have to... So they are thousands of kilometers away, at going at tens of thousands of kilometers per hour, and they have to get the cameras pointed at exactly, yeah, exactly the, the point. right spot. They, they're probably going to hire these 16-year-old kids who are the champions of these video games. You know how big video games are? Oh, yeah, right. They sit there motionless, expressionless, but hitting things in the millisecond. Yeah, and it'll be like, either we do this or we pilot probes in war yes, zones. Yes. Like the drone, you know, we become drone pilots. And war. they're millionaires. Now, these kids, there are a couple of Malaysian kids it, out there. I was going to say... Earning millions. Because I know, like... It's ridiculous. I know esports are huge around, like, career is massive. Oh, massive here in Malaysia. But second, second by 2020, it'll be the second largest watched TV sport after the World Cup. Watched? Football, yes, on TV. Yes. Wow. It's ridiculous. You do, I don't know this, but then when I, when I talk to kids who are you know, below 25 years old, wow, that's all they watch. It's in, insane. That's amazing. Because I know people, like, Twitch is huge, where people just sit online and watch yes. other people play games and talk and that. And... Yeah, I've got friends who have young kids and they will just watch YouTube videos of hours of someone playing a computer game. Almost as ridiculous as sitting home and listening to two comedians just talk Talking about, about nothing. science that that's, they don't understand. That's ridiculous. It is. It's, we, oh, my God. I guess, I guess it is no more ridiculous than watching people play football or any other I, sports. I guess. It is, it yeah. is a, you're watching people be athletic and strategic and quick. With and their fingers. Yeah, guess. with their fingers. But then, you know, every... Different sports have different parts of the body. Play. Oh, what? Okay, yeah, I keep forgetting the name of it. What is the sport I'm okay. now obsessed with? So uh, when you when you got here, you were looking at the TV. There's a sport called Sepa Takra. S e p a k t a k r a w. You can Google it. So where just, three players aside, and as you described it, what did it look like to you? Okay, it's like volleyball, but played by monkey ninjas. Exactly. <laughs> it is. It is like. Um, this is the most absurdly athletic thing I've ever seen in my life. Like people just like flipping upside down. So volleyball, you use your hands, two yes. hands to hit the ball. In sepatakro, you can only use your feet and not your leg, your feet. So if the ball is eight feet in the air. You have to flip over, head over heels and, and hit the ball with your foot, which is, you know, if it's a size eight or ten, while smashing this ball, which is no longer than... Yeah, uh, eight, eight, eight inches in diameter, it's like, six inches it's in diameter. It's like watching a martial arts demonstration combined with volleyball. Yes. Like, it, just the backflips alone, I'd be impressed by even if they hadn't made contact with a ball. The fact that they're making contact and then success, like volleyball, successfully defending and then setting it up and then their teammate backflip kicks it over, <laughs> yeah, the, over the net. And then they manage to intercept it again and keep it going. It, it's mind-blowing, this it sport. It is. I, I'm... It's, just Google it and, and get some, some video on that and you'll we'll, know what we're talking we'll about. We'll put it in the show notes okay. as well if I remember to add that. Okay. But it's, so you can look up That's scientific. That it's, is scientific. I don't even know how you begin to train for that. Did you have to play that at school? Well, no, it's one of those things when, as a kid, you found someone who's had a house with a gate and you'd, you know, be on either side of the gate and that gate would be the net because you couldn't afford a net or you couldn't afford a court. Right. And you'd, you'd, uh, start playing it by just kicking it over, you know, the net, much as you would badminton. Right. You know, and then you get better and then you, when you're a kid, you attempt anything. So you, you flip, you land on your head, you crack it open, you laugh and you continue. Yeah. Or in my case, you stop <laughs> playing sports altogether. And, you know. And start telling stories at private parties. Yes, exactly. So those kids who are dumb enough to continue uh, then become professionals. Yeah, they, they were extraordinary. There you go. Yeah, the ninja monkey ninja backflip monkey. volleyball game. It's yeah, it's incredible. Well, it's here's so when we watch lawn balls as as Malaysians, uh -huh. our lawn balls made it into the, the the Southeast Asian games and the Asian games, and we sit there and it's we're, huge in Australia. It's huge in Australia, and, and but even cricket. I mean, yeah, we we look at it going okay, and we don't get it because it's just so foreign to us. Like really. Looks like an old people's game. Yeah, but, uh, but it's, you know, it's one of those things. It, it's a sport that's. You know. That's it. But when I when I watch lawn bowls, I look at it and go, I probably wouldn't be good at it. 
like, but I could do it. I can roll. I can yeah. roll that thing. I can roll a, a ball. I can yeah. roll a ball along a thing and have it stop roughly near. Yeah. Roughly near another ball. But you couldn't backflip while hitting a ball with your feet. Yeah, fingers. I couldn't do even the begin. I couldn't even do the serve. Like, I just watched them <laughs> serve. And, like, even that, they sort of set it up and do the first kick. Okay. Like, a sort of sight. It's incredible. We're off the subject. Okay. We are off the subject. That's something that happens very frequently in this in this game. So, uh, in this show, rather. So, so, unlike... So, what can we expect from the flyby? So, they said, unlike the encounter with Pluto in July of 2015, there won't be increasingly resolved images on approach to admire. Ultima will remain a blob in the viewfinder pretty much until the day. So in, when, okay. when Pluto, when they did the Pluto flyby, because Pluto is still a dwarf planet, but it's still a, it's still a sizable object. So as it was approaching, and it was going, you know, it was, um, I think it got a little bit closer, but I could be wrong about that. But it, you got... From a couple of days out, you got the sort of low resolution images, then higher resolution, sure. higher resolution, and then in the time since, it was sending more and more of the pictures back at higher and higher resolutions. But this time round, it's just going to be a little blob, and then you'll just get the pictures. But and it's called Ultima. They've, they've decided. That's oh, it's okay. So it is going closer. I was wrong about this. So it's it is thirty five thousand kilom sorry thirty five hundred kilometers versus twelve thousand five hundred kilometers, which is how far away from Pluto they got. So eventually, when we do get the pictures through, it will be higher, finer detail. So, so coincidence that it they're gonna land this photograph on New Year's Day? Like, wow. So on. Mm. So here we go. On the there'll be a roughly forty eight hour period. Because afterwards, so because New Horizons has to swivel to point its instruments, it can't keep its antennae and antenna locked on Earth while also gathering ah, data. Okay. So it'll have to be later on New Year's Day for the probe to sort of reorient and phone home and start mm. to downlink some of the pictures. So it'll be January the second before we see the first of the images, and the third of January when we start to get the best images. Because also it's going to take. Oh, so it's like the old days of film where you took a photo, sent it to the shop, and then you didn't know it. what you had, and got it back, and it was all blurred. Yeah, your thumb's ah, over the lens. Yeah. Oh, Mom, so, why'd you put your I, thumb over the lens? So we remember that. When anybody under 25 or 30 doesn't remember that. But this yeah. is, it's going to be that. There it's used be to be that. a world back in the day when yeah. we were younger when if someone took a picture, that was your picture. Yes. You had no chance to redo it you didn't even know whether it was a good picture and or not you never turn the camera around and took a picture of yourself that would be insane a yeah. waste of film <laughs> you know unless you had a polaroid you'd sometimes do that yes sometimes but so it'll be that we'll, we'll so see it the takes photos. a it takes a long time to send these signals back so at a distance of 6.5 billion kilometers radio signals take over six hours to reach earth which is still Amazing. That is still amazing. That's crazy. Six hours. So that they are six yeah. light hours away. Yeah. And then the data rates are low. Typical data rates max out around 1,000 bits a second. So it's going to take 20 months to get it all back. So New Horizons principal investigator Alan Stern said, so it's kind of cool. We'll be getting new presents from the Kuiper Belt every week and every month through 2019 and most of 2020. So for the next two years... Pretty much, we're going to get more and more pictures of this, of this thing, and then after that, the team is going to ask NASA to fund an extended mission. So the hope is that it can be altered to visit at least one more Kuiper Belt object at some point in the next decades. It has just enough fuel reserves to be able to do this, and it has enough electrical reserves to keep operating its instruments through. Oh. So. New Horizons plutonium battery may even allow it to keep talking to Earth as it leaves the solar system. So, at one point, it's just going to run out and just eventually it'll just float be, away. Yeah, it'll just be a dead object that's flying wow. at tens of thousands of kilometers an hour off into nothing. And then some other intelligent life forms from another place is going to see this, going to find it, and, and then give it a name. And by then, like the long dead pilot. Yes. Is he still Oh, oh still yeah, that was there. got a pilot as well. So he's the one who's going to orient it. <laughs> okay. Wow. Okay. Yeah. I, 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 actually, you know what? It might be... This is a more recent probe, so it could be a female pilot, but the Voyager ones were back in the... I launched in the 60s, I think, so... Or 70s. So, you know, it would have been a man for then. 
because women were not allowed to to pilot rockets back in yeah, or certainly not like orbital probes. Yeah, but they do live longer. This is a story that was sent in by. Let me find out who sent this story in. This story was sent in by Chris Nelson. Listen to Chris Nelson. Women have an average life expectancy that's about four years longer than men, regardless of culture or geography. Even among animal species, females outlive males. Why they'd have that advantage hadn't been well understood. In the past, some people thought it was maybe lifestyle, but scientists now say there may be a genetic mechanism underlying this age-old phenomenon. In a new study, researchers found that mice with two X chromosomes live longer, regardless of their other biological factors. Researchers said the findings suggest that the second X chromosome may govern longevity and explain why women, women outlive men. Ah. So, all mammals are born with two sex chromosomes. Female have two X, whereas males have one X and one Y. That's not always the case, but uh, and doesn't even mention like XXYs and that kind of thing. But they, but in general, that's what happens. So X chromosomes are necessary for survival and contain important genes related to the brain. Y chromosomes, on the other hand, are found only in males and are not crucial for survival. Y chromosomes carry relatively few genes beyond those related to secondary sex characteristics such as male genitals and facial hair. To investigate the link between chromosomes and survival, researchers tested different chromosomes and gonad combinations among genetically identical mice. Some mice had biological male or female combinations mirroring those found in nature, XX with ovaries and XY with testes. Other mice had XX paired with testes and XY paired with ovaries. They're really fucking with these mice. They are. So researchers found that the mice with natural female mouse biology, two X chromosomes and ovaries, outlived all the mice. Mice with two X chromosomes tended to live longer Regardless of whether they had ovaries or testes, among this group of mice, the longevity effect was observed beginning at 21 months, which is the end of a normal mouse lifespan. Researchers said the results point to a potential role of the second X chromosomes in longer lifespans, which suggests that the hormones produced by female gonads increase lifespan in mice with two X chromosomes, either by influencing how the mouse develops or by activating certain biological pathways during their lives, says Dina Dubal a neurologist and senior author of the study. Scientists don't understand exactly why the second X chromosome contributes to a longer lifespan. It may be that the second X and its genetic expression has a protective effect that increases survival. Another theory is that the presence of a Y chromosome is somehow harmful. However, the scientists hope to understand this interplay by embarking on future studies. When things go wrong in aging, says Dubal, having more of the X chromosome along with its diversity of expression could be really beneficial. I don't know if you... So, they're saying what? If you want to live longer... Yeah, get yourself some X chromosomes get in there. Your, pick yourself up some additional Xs. Get some more Xs in there. Uh, I, I guess, I mean, apart from... They're not doing this specifically to find out how to live longer, but I guess this is giving you information as to what causes longevity, what affects lifespan. You can start to work out what is it about the... What is it that that X chromosome does that specifically gives you the ability to last longer or survive? Unless a bus hits you. Well, that's always going to be the case. Would, would, I doubt the X would do much difference. An additional X won't really help in that. Yeah, get a, get a chromosome test it quick. This bus <laughs> really did some damage. <laughs> yes. Okay, so I guess what, so it's a fact. In well, this is a... Women tend to live longer. Well, that, that, that was known for a long time. Like, the female lifespan is or has is generally longer than the male lifespan. Well, but, okay. Now, if you look back over the centuries, because back in the day, you know, the, the thousands of men would head out to war and come back all dead, or not really come back all dead, just be all dead. Right. And then, then you'd go, oh, women live longer. So I think you, you, even when it's corrected for that, but then they did say in this article they, they still thought it might be lifestyle because even, even getting rid of things like war, that just there might be yeah. the thing that the males would traditionally do in society, both in terms of the work they had to do and also the lifestyles they led. Maybe they drink more, maybe they smoke more, maybe they, you know, yes. maybe they, they had less healthy diets potentially. So it looks like even correcting for all of that kind of thing and correcting for the effects of things like the gonads or the ovaries, it is the X chromosome specifically 
compared to the Y chromosome in these mice at least. In these mice at least, yes. That causes... Because I, I presume the mice were not out smoking and drinking after, after the little test. No, well. they, the, in labs I think they keep the mice that they test the cigarettes and alcohol on in different cages from the mice that they test these things on. Yes. Because otherwise it would affect... You know, you got to control for that kind of thing. No, I agree, I agree. It's... Uh, I want to see who sent in this wasp story, because this is pretty cool. Hang on, I'm going to look this up, because I'm, I'm running solo right now. Normally I'd be able to look this up while Andy starts talking. But Mike... Which Mike are you, Mike? Doesn't say in... Mike. The, it just says Mike. Listen up, Mike. Uh, MIT engineers repurpose wasp venom as an antibiotic drug. Alt- Whoa. Altered peptides from a South American wasp venom can kill bacteria but are non-toxic to human cells. I what kind of bugs do you have to deal with in Kuala Lumpur and Malaysia? Because well, I, I got bitten by something yesterday. Last night, deaf something got me. I think it was probably a mosquito. Well, yeah, we, you know, we get bitten by many things which sometimes we can't explain. Uh, what does kill here is uh, the dengue, the mosquito, which, which has the dengue. Uh, it's, I wouldn't say it's a venom, but... Uh, no, there there are deaths from dengue, the mosquito, the dengue mosquito. Oh, so let's hope whatever wasp, got me last night is no, a no non dengueish non dengueish Yes, probably not. Uh, touch wood. If I don't hear from you in six days or so, <laughs> dengue might, prob- probably. He's either traveling or dengue got him. It's yeah, one of, those two. one of those two. So this South American wasp venom can kill bacteria. Yeah. So the venom of insects such as wasps and bees is full of compounds that can kill bacteria. Unfortunately, many of them are also toxic for humans, making it impossible to use them as an antibiotic drug. Uh, there, there's God playing with us again. Just I know. Like screwing us over. That's why you don't just release the bees. Yes. <laughs> Do you remember those movies in the 70s? There's like, you know, the wasp movie, then the bee, and then the earthquake. And then I think there was, a, there was probably a bee attack, killer bee attack. There was probably a movie if you've, you know, from the 70s or 80s or killer wasp attack. I don't think yeah. I saw any of those. No, don't. Oh, sorry. Yeah, yeah, I'm sorry. In the 70s, there was a whole host of um, scary horror, you know, the, the killer bee, the killer spiders, the giant spider attack. I'm sure you've seen posters, the giant spiders, giant killer bees, giant killer wasps. Anyway, so this was probably, not th- those movies preempted this. So yeah. Wasps are a good thing, apparently. Totally. So in this case... So they performed a systematic study of the antimicrobial properties of a toxin normally found in a South American wasp. South American wasps just sound terrifying. I know, just straight away. It just feels like... It's got this cigar, it's got this fedora, <laughs> probably wearing a bandana underneath. Essay, um, you know. Uh, researchers at MIT have now created variants of the peptide that are potent against bacteria, but non-toxic to human cells. Okay. In a study of mice... Mice again. Mice again. God damn these mice. Oh, these guys. You know, just being pumped with all kinds of shit. Anyway. Uh, The researchers found that their strongest possible peptide could completely eliminate... uh, Here we go. Pseudomonas aeruginosa, which is a strain of bacteria that causes respiratory and other infections and is resistant to most antibiotics. Mm. So we've repurposed a toxic molecule into one that is a viable molecule to treat infections, says Cesar de la Fuente Nunez, who's an MIT postdoc. By systematically analyzing the structure and function of these peptides, we've been able to tune their properties and activity. So he's one of the senior authors of the study. Uh, along with Timothy Liu and Vanny Oliveira, who is an associate professor at the Federal University of ABC in Brazil, the, and lead author Marcelo de, de Torosian Torres. They have some great names in this thing. So as part of their immune defenses, many organisms, including, including humans, produce peptides that can kill bacteria. To help fight the emergence of antibiotic-resistant drug bacteria, many scientists have been trying to adapt them as potential new drugs. The peptide that De La Fuente Nunez and colleagues focused on in this study was isolated from a wasp known as Polybia paulista. The peptide is small enough, only 12 amino acids, that the researchers believed it could be feasible to create some variants of the peptide and test them to see if they might become more potent against microbes and less harmful to humans. 
It's a small enough peptide that you can try to mutate as many amino acid residues as possible to try to figure how each building block is contributing to the antimicrobial activity and toxicity. Toxicity, he said. Like many other antimicrobial peptides, the venom-derived one is believed to kill microbes by disrupting the bacteria's cell membranes. It has an alpha helical structure, which is known to interact strongly with the membranes. So in the first phase, here's what they did. They created a few dozen variants of this peptide from the venom, then measured how the changes affected the helical structure and their hydrophobicity, which determines how well they interact with membranes. Hydrophobic is repelling of water. Uh, then they tested these peptides against seven strains of bacteria and two fungus, making it possible to correlate their structure and s physiochemical properties with their antimicrobial potency. I'm reading this directly off of MIT's press release, which is why it is very... It's slightly more highbrow than the usual articles yeah, that we filter through. It's not Wikipedia. They are chuck They're putting in all the they, info. They're throwing all the words in. Oh, here's a second bite. Sure there I got, you go. Got bitten twice there. There, that's uh, got me. something to do with uh, your psychochemical properties. There we go. Might have some antimicrobial potency. I was just, I was just scratching my arm here, and I was like, "Ah, oh, the bastard got me twice." Uh, based on the structure-function relation, do we? Do they have malaria out here as well? Yes. Uh, well, mm, we, we are. We get an injection, uh, you know, when we're we're kids or anti-malaria, but. Uh, yeah, it, it, because we are a tropical country and there's, you know, there's rainforests and, and mosquitoes and, and water and trees. And also, yeah, you, malaria just pop its head up once in a while. Okay, well, yeah. I'll, I'll just keep an eye on how I'm feeling over the next few weeks. <laughs> just oh, is that why you were asking? I thought it was a general scientific question. No, that's just no, a general, like, yeah, you know, yeah. wouldn't bother me too much if I got bitten by a mosquito in many places. But no, out here, no. you're like, ah, she's... No, nah, you're all right. You're all right. Uh... So, so based on the structure-function relationships, they identified that researchers then designed another... They designed more... Do, a dozen few... Or, sorry, a few dozen more peptides for testing. They were able to identify optimal percentages of hydrophobic amino acids and positively charged amino acids. And they also identified a cluster of amino acids where any changes would impair the overall function of the molecule. Wow, this MIT.edu, they don't screw around, do they? They, they just, don't. They... They say, just follow us. We we'll yeah. put these words in. So then, okay, so that's how they tested to see if it killed the bacteria or the fungi. Okay. Um, but then they needed to see if it was safe on humans. So they then exposed these peptides to human embryonic kidney cells grown in a lab dish. Whoa. They selected the most promising compounds to test in mice infected with that respiratory disease and found that several of them could reduce the infection. One of them, given at a high dose, could eliminate it completely. After four days, the compound can completely clear the infection, and that was quite surprising and exciting because we don't normally see that with other experimental antimicrobials or antibiotics. This, so they're very happy about how this happened. Then there's some, there's some talking, there's some digging up from other people going, yeah, good work, these guys. They did well. But they said, I think some of the principles we've learned here can be applicable to other similar peptides that are derived from nature. Things like helis... Helicity and hydrophobicity are very important for a lot of these molecules, and some of the rules that we've learned here can be definitely extrapolated. Well done, De La Fuente Nunes. Yep, and team. The research was funded in part, it says, by the Ramon Arises Foundation and the Defense Threat Reduction Agency. That's why the I read that bit up. Defense Threat, Threat. Reduction Agency. I don't even know. That's like some I double think... negatives in there. What is it? Is I that... think I've seen that on an episode of CSI. Or is it Men in Black? We're from the Defense Threat Negative Agency. <laughs> it does. Like, well, there is no such agency. And, you know, it's, 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 Get it's you know, Will Smith <laughs> going, look into this pen. Um, let's do a dinosaur story. This, okay. this is one I found. That... I like dinosaurs. I've got three young kids. I'm oh, way up on my yeah. dinosaurs. Kid, most kids go through a dinosaur phase at least some point. And I don't even know when that began, because as a kid, I, we didn't. I think it was after Jurassic Park came along. But kids nowadays, yep. before even knowing what a dinosaur is, they I just gravitated. They, my kids just gravitate at that two-year-old, three-year-old point, they just for some reason. And, you know, they, they've woken up. Before they learn to say mom and dad, they're saying Triceratops and Tyrannosaurus Rex. Also, how, how old are they now? 
Seven, five, and three. Oh, okay. There you go. Uh, oh, cool. Is there a good natural history museum in Kuala Lumpur? No, not uh, not here. But uh, you know, everything's online. So right. And that's a, and we have great plastic toys made in China. Yeah. <laughs> But yeah, you got to take them at some point to a, to one of the I museums that has the I big dinosaur to. skeleton. But they have just discovered two exceptionally well-preserved fossils, which give a new picture of the pterosaurs, the flying reptiles that lived at the time of the dinosaurs. Scientists believe the creatures may have had feathers and look something like brown bats with fuzzy wings. Here's a picture of what they think it might have looked like at Whoa. the top here. The surprise discovery suggests feathers evolved not in birds nor dinosaurs, but more distant times. Okay, because it's been known for a while that dinosaurs actually probably had... A lot of the dinosaur pictures we have are wrong, and they actually... A lot of them had feathers when they maybe shouldn't have. And that was a criticism of the more recent Jurassic Park films, where they went, hey, we now know that dinosaurs should have feathers, and but you're keeping with the aesthetics of the first film rather than updating it to what we now know science says. Ah, okay. But, but when has Hollywood ever been... Totally uh, interested in authenticity this, and facts, right? This Dinosaurs Living Among Us film is lacking in authenticity. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Please have some accuracy. Please have some accuracy. Put some feathers on that T-Rex. <laughs> on that CGI yeah. animal that is currently chasing the hero. So we've known, we've known that dinosaurs, prob- many dinosaurs probably had feathers. But the pterosaurs were the closest relatives of dinosaurs sharing a common ancestor about 250 million years ago. Professor Mike Benton from University of Bristol said, we would suggest tentatively that it would be worth considering that feathers originated much earlier than we thought. These, these fossils, like your kids' toys, are from China. <laughs> Authentic. Yep, they are from two different pterosaurs, one of which is newly discovered. In-depth analysis show that as well as fur, which had been suggested before, the flying reptiles had um, feathers like some dinosaurs, including the theropods. If I just saw these fluffy bits on their own, says Dr. Steve Broussat of the University of Edinburgh, who is not part of the study, I would swear they were from a theropod. This means feathers were not a bird innovation, nor even a dinosaur one, but evolved first in a much more distant ancestor. The age of dinosaurs are full of all sorts of strange feathery creatures. The researchers found that the pterosaurs had four different kinds of covering, including fuzzy fur over most of their bodies, and on parts of their heads and wings, three types of fibers similar to modern feathers. Mm. Yeah, the fluff and the feathers are likely to have been important in heat regulation and aerodynamics. These structures on the pterosaur make it look a bit like a fruit bat or something like that, a fuzzy hairy creature, says Professor Benton, who worked on the discovery. They fly with great outstretched bony wings that can carry a substantial membrane a bit like a bat. So questions remain over whether they're true feathers. If they are, it would suggest that feathers appeared millions of years earlier than previously thought. Alternatively, they could have evolved twice. So that sometimes happens Ooh. that the same thing evolves separately in evolution. Okay. So for example, I, I think I'm right about this. Listeners, correct me if I'm wrong. We have scientists listeners who write in when we get things completely wrong. But... I think, for example, sonar evolved completely separately in bats and dolphins. So bats fly with sonar, Mm -hmm. dolphins navigate with sonar, but they both evolved that capability independently because you can tell because they're on different evolutionary branches and the other things on those branches don't have them. And dolphins rarely go on branches, uh, if ever. So it would have to be separate. Yeah, Yeah. Exactly, exactly. They don't... <laughs> you don't find a dolphin in a cave. You don't yeah. find a... Well, no, not usually. No, I, I, I guess... Unless the cave was underwater. Unless it's underwater and something bad's happened. Mm. Okay. They have to be rescued. So feathers on dinosaurs and thesaurs, pterosaurs. Yeah, so feathers, feathers could have evolved twice during the course of evolution. Uh, insects were the first group... To achieve that ability to fly, they developed wings, what, 320 million years ago? Okay. I was, thanks for covering that while I quickly shut off a phone call. But yeah, insects are the first group to achieve it. Uh, Pterosaurs are the first vertebrates, animals with a backbone, to evolve powered flight around 230 million years ago. And and that's what they look like. They look, well, they might look like a ninja monkey. Yeah, that's the, (laughs) exactly. If, If you were... Just to say the word ninja monkey without explaining the sport, it did look like that. 
you'd look like that yeah. or just sound racist. <laughs> just... Um, let's let's do this. Let's do this little story. Come on, before we wrap it up. This is an, a computer chip that will sniff your armpits and tell you whether you have BO. You know, oh, useful thing if you live yes. in a tropical climate. Very useful. Do I smell? Uh, AI is here to help. A run for the bus can leave you trying to check your armpit without anyone noticing. UK chip maker Arm, better known for developing the hardware that powers most smartphones, is working on a new generation of smart chips that embed artificial intelligence inside devices. One of these chips is being taught to smell. Uh, That is, to detect smell rather than to create smell. Because the same word means both. The idea is that chips will be small and cheap enough to be built into clothing, allowing an AI to keep tabs on your BO throughout the day. Arm also wants to add the chips to food packaging to monitor freshness. Okay, I would say that's a more useful thing. You can uh, yes. tell, unless, you, unless you're someone who has no sense of smell, which happens, you can, you can work it out. But monitoring freshness in food packaging, I'd say, is the more actual useful thing. So the Enos is a part of a project called Plastic Armpit. Oh, that's they, arm. They could have arm come is the up name with, of the chip in the middle. They could have come up with a better name, I think. But they've managed to embed the name of their company in the middle of that. So it's uh, plastic. It's arm. One, one word, plastic armpit. Yeah, plastic and, armpit. and the A on arm and the P in pit is capitalized, so you see the word arm being uh, in the middle. Uh, there you go. So arm is developing smart chips made from thin sheets of plastic. Each chip will have eight different sensors and a built-in machine learning circuit. It would look like a piece of cling film with bits stuck to it says James Miser Arms. Plastic armpit will be the first application of machine learning in plastic electronics. Smells are made up of different combinations of concentrations of gases. The sensors on the chip will detect different chemicals in the air. And AI will take that complex data and identify it as a particular whiff. The chip will then score the smell. Score the smell? Yep. 2.5, 9.8. Yeah, they're like holding up like a judge, judge and yeah. then lowering their arms immediately because they shouldn't have held it up according yes. to what it said. Uh, so if it's in the armpit of your shirt, it will tell you the strength of your body odor from one to five, says Myers. It is the job of the machine learning to collect and interpret all the data and alert the user if action is needed. E-noses are not new. Julian Gardner, who pioneered the technology at the University of Warwick, has been building them for three decades. In 93, he co-founded a company called Alpha MOS that sells e-noses to the food industry. Mm. The trouble is these devices cost around $20,000, says Gardner. He has since developed smaller, cheaper versions that cost just a few dollars, but they need to be made even cheaper to be sewn into clothing, which is what Arm hopes to do. I think that if the sensors are almost free, then people could buy clothes with with them, says Gardner. But they will also need to survive in the wash, which could be a challenge even for plastic electronics, which are normally more resilient than regular electronics. Hold on. So, chip goes in the in in your shirt. You perspire. A bit of odor, and then what? It buzzes. I guess. I guess it alerts you. Some. My thought is it probably would send that information to your smartphone in some way. Like you you stink. You alert going like you need to change the shirt. Time to change. Time to change. Okay. Or you could have a friend tell you that. Yes. This is one of those things where the thing that it's the thing that's the headline reason for this technology is substantially less interesting, I think, than other uses. I think the food use is more interesting. So Alex Bond at Fresh Check, which is a London-based startup that's developing a chemical test to check for bacteria on food, thinks e-noses are a good way to monitor food quality because they don't need to touch the food. So I guess the same way the humans do. So an AI-powered nose could be tuned to pick up different types of smell. Flexibility is important because beef doesn't spoil the same way in fish. And pork loin may be classed as spoiled, but still be suitable to be turned into sausage. Okay, all right. Didn't okay, that's the thing. potential problem in Malaysia, because we have a fruit called the durian, which is known as probably one of the 10 stinkiest things in the world, but it's absolutely delicious to people who like the durian right but uh, and you're not allowed to take it on certain like public transport you can't bring it into a hotel you can't bring it into a lift you can't bring it into public transport because foreigners tend to faint when they (laughs) smell the durian but people hunt down the durian crack it open and just gobble it down i've had durian and it is very nice but it's it's strong it's very but 
But also, it's one of those things. The actual flavor, like the the fruitiness and the sweetness, counteracts the yes. pungency of it. Yes. So, you know, not necessarily in terms of food would this help. But yeah. I, I get I get the picture. But you could it could be tuned to specific yes. scents and specific odors. Yes. So Bond, Bond thinks it'll be challenged to get smart chips into food packaging, no matter how cheap they are. Any increase to packaging costs is hard to justify. Most food manufacturers have really tight profit margins. So it has to be a very strong incentive for them to adopt more expensive packaging. One option may be to li limit the use of sensors to premium foods or countries where there is a high risk of con contamination. But ARM hopes to embed more than e-noses into packaging. Chips built into plastic could be used to signal what kind of plastic a bottle or wrapper was made from. Uh, for example. Okay. There's another... That little, would be useful. That would be useful. Another story as well. So this is just linked to from the same story. This is from last year. We might have even covered it. But bacteria from a less smelly person could help treat someone who has BO. Because everyone has their own microbiome. And people... I think people have specific scents. And some scents might be more enjoyable to certain people than others. So a few years ago, Chris Calwert of the University of California, San Diego, I'm sure you have done this story, met a pair of identical twins, one of whom had bad body odor. So Calwert suspected that the collection of bacteria living in the armpits might be responsible for the different personal scents. So to find out, he swapped the bacteria from the stinky twin's armpit with that from his twin brother. And then asked the twin that didn't smell to refrain from washing for four days. Uh, the, meanwhile, the stinky twin scrubbed his pits with antibacterial soap every four days. The idea was to remove as much of his armpit bacteria as possible while letting the other guy cultivate his. Then he collected the nicest smelling twin's dead skin loaded with bacteria and swabbed it into the armpits of the smellier twin. The man's body odor problem rapidly disappeared and the effects have persisted for over a year. That is some resilience right there. But there we go. You know, so you just need an identical twin who doesn't smell and you can... <laughs> I mean, that's not the first thing I would think of doing if I met identical twins with one with stinky arms. Come on, but let's I'm not a scientist, but yeah. The first thing you think of doing is like pranks. Yes. Like, you know, showing up, knocking on the door, yeah. running around the back, showing up in the same clothes. Exactly. But that's, the scientists don't think of that. They think of smelly armpits. But, but interesting, though. It takes a scientist amazing. to do that. Yes. It's... Um, it takes a scientist to go, you know what we should maybe do? Oh, there are other ways you can improve your body odor bacteria, apparently. Microbes that feed on lipids, like fats and oils, are especially bad for body odor. So you can try limiting the amount of lipids in your skin by keeping a healthy weight and avoiding fatty foods. Mm. Shaving can also help, apparently, as can wearing the right clothing. When we wear clothes, we transfer bacteria to them, and some fabrics encourage the growth of bad bacteria associated with offensive smells. Washing those clothes doesn't necessarily solve the problem. It merely helps spread the bacteria amongst the contents. Polyester apparently is particularly bad. I can vouch for that. Yeah, that's what you don't really... People don't tend to wear too many polyester things out here. Well, when I was younger and a student, you know, those were the cheapest clothes. And then, yeah, so yes, I, yeah. I get that piece of This is a part of the world where cotton and linen are definitely yes. <laughs> valued. Uh, yeah, there you go. Find, find your twin. Find your find <laughs> your less smelly twin. Rub armpits. Spend four days first washing with antibacterial soap. Let have have that person not do it, and then you can swap. Sounds like fun. Or maybe you could get worse bo if that's what you want. You yes. know, you could pick your bo. Find pers find the person you think smells the best, and steal their scent. Okay. You can do it. Uh, and please write in and, and tell Matt if you did that. Yes, email us probablyscience at gmail.com or tweet us at probablyscience. Hey, Harith, where can our listeners find you and everything you do? Okay, so it's Harith Iskander, H-A-R-I-T-H-I-S-K-A-N-D-E-R on on Twitter, Instagram, and Harith Iskander Comedian on Facebook. Um, and uh, if you're ever in the region in Malaysia, Kuala Lumpur, come on down to the Joke Factory, which is in uh, the Publica shopping mall. We've got shows six nights a week. And thank you, Matt, for coming. It's Man, a, it was such awesome. a pleasure. Yeah. Thank you for week. having me. Thank you for doing this. Thanks for coming uh, by in the morning. I'm, I'm heading off to the airport after this. And yes. you were kind enough to swing by beforehand. Merry so. Christmas in advance. Thank uh, you. If, if this, because we're recording this before Christmas. Yeah. And Merry Flyby of the Probe. Yes, on New Year's Day. On New Year's Day. Look forward to the photos on January the 2nd or 3rd. And, and then throughout the rest of the year and the year after that as well. 
thank you so much for joining. Listeners, uh, thanks for bearing with a slightly lower sound quality while we record in an echoey room with the single Zoom recorder. I hope it sounded okay. And I hope you don't mind the little two-handers that I've been notching off while I'm traveling. Thanks to the listeners who came by to the shows. I got to meet a couple of you, a few of you in Australia, and hopefully meet some of you in Singapore tonight. This will be long gone by the time you listen to it. But uh, you can always find us, Probably Science, at Probably Science, Facebook slash Probably Science. Any questions, comments, clarifications, stories you'd like to us to cover, probablyscience.com is the website where you can also find our Patreon and PayPal links if you want to support the show financially. I don't have the information on me as to who has done that, so we'll have to thank everyone on a future episode. But thank you, everyone who has. We really, really appreciate it. I'm, if this is the last one of the year, I don't know when this is going to come out yet, but Happy New Year. Have a great one, and we'll see you soon. Thanks a lot. Bye.